Before we get to my interview with PBA President Pat Lynch, I want to tell you all about the newest sponsor of the Mike Sappho podcast, Henry Davin from Century 21 Realty. Finding cheap flights? Now that's simple. Finding the score to any game in the world? Piece of cake. Finding a dream home? Now that's where the hassle kicks in. It's a lot of hard work. It's tedious. And most of all, it's time consuming. And after all that, after all those searches, only to come up with the same listings over and over on different sites... Henry Davern is making real estate great again with his experience, his dedication, and his knowledge of all things real estate. He sets up viewings, he negotiates offers, and his drive to find you the place that you want is what he's known for. A buddy of mine just used Henry out in Long Island, got a nice place. Afterwards, he raved about him. So I linked up with Henry a couple weeks ago. We sat down, had a few beers, but you can tell he's passionate, man. He's knowledgeable about this stuff, and uh, I'm retiring in two years. So I'm looking for a new place, so he's helped me look for a place. I'm telling you, I can't recommend him more. Maybe you're downsizing during these trying times. Maybe you need to add a place with a home office. Maybe you're finally making the decision to move into that dream home you always wanted. The only thing you need to do is contact Henry Davern at 516-297-0924. That's 516-297-0924. Whether it's residential, commercial, or rental, or everything in between, you know where to go for your real estate needs. Again, it's Henry Davin from Century 21 Realty. Contact him, 516-297-0924. Tell him Mike Sappho sent you, and let's make real estate great again. And now, the New York City Police Department PBA President, Officer Pat Lynch. Pat Lynch, I know you from television, my friend. How are you? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. The long time schedule in it, but we got it done. This better be worth it because this has been going on for a while. A few years now, <laughs> I've been asking people to get you on now. So thank you for giving me some of your time. My pleasure. All right, we're going to go from husband, father, officer, PBA president. We're going to fill all that in because you don't stop at all, do you? Hey, it's a busy job, but it's a job worth doing. So uh, I'll gladly take it. And I can't complain. I asked for it, right? You love it, though, don't you? I do. Uh, it's a job where you can follow your passion, both for law enforcement as police officers. But think about it. Every word I say, every defense I put forward is defending your own, defending New York City police officers. So it, it can't get better than that. So, yeah, I love it. Does it get wild now with the age of social media that everything Pat Lynch says, you're trending on Twitter within two minutes? Is that weird on your end? It, it is. It is odd because, you know, every morning as cops, we just look in the mirror and say, hey, it's just us. But we have a serious job as police officers and as uh, an executive board member at the New York City PBA, which is the largest police union in the world. It can get daunting and it's odd, uh, but it's also important. So the things that you say are not only heard by your members, which is our priority. Mm -hmm. It's heard by the people of the city uh, who we work for. So you want them to understand and learn why and how we do our job. But across the country, other police organizations, police officers, those that wear shields on their chest, regardless of what shape they are, also listen. Because the issues we have here, they will have in their communities and vice versa. We're going to fill in the gaps from... Growing up in Queens to rookie police officer to 
PBA cop to PBA president. Sound good? Fair enough. Where did Pat Lynch grow up? Uh, Bayside, Queens. I'm only three blocks from where I started. Born and reared right there in Bayside. Big family, normal family. How was your childhood I don't know about up? normal, but we were a big family. <laughs> there was uh, nine people in my house and a crazy dog. Uh, my father was a New York City motorman. I'm a first-generation American. My mother was born in Ireland, grew up in an orphanage. My father was born in Queens, and uh, we were fortunate enough through his hard work to be able to buy a home there and fit us all in. So we're going to say this big Irish family. Yeah. It's going to be stereotypical because right. I grew up in Staten Island. It was big Italian family, big Irish family, city worker. It was kind of in your blood. That was the only option, wasn't it? That's exactly right. My father was a 30-year New York City motorman. Before I became a police officer, first I was a janitor, and then after that I was a New York City conductor. So I followed in his footsteps for a short period. But, of course, this job was better, and I crossed over. Besides being a police officer, dream job growing up. What Pat Lynch want to be growing up? You know what? I, I was always a realistic kind of guy. I always knew a city job is the way to go because I saw how my father and mother were able to come from nothing and build something, and I wanted to continue that. I, even as a, a young guy, I believed that uh, our parents' job was to get us in the middle of class uh, my job was to keep us in the middle class and move us up, and hopefully my son's job is to move on to bigger and greater uh, places. So I always knew service, and I don't mean in a corny way, mm -hmm. but I always knew the civil service was a way for me to do that. So naturally I went into the subway, and then from there, uh, the New York City uh, police officer, I took the test and went on. It was a better job. It was a more lucrative job at the time, too. It was about $5,000 more than what I was making. So it was worth doing it. So all the way back, what did I really want to be from the beginning? Uh, who knows? <laughs> now, growing up, like you said, in Queens, everyone has the freedom. Good guy, bad guy. Now, you had another city job. When did it come on? Was it only money? I want to raise my right hand to be one of the good guys. Was it money or was it more you, you want to serve, really? You know, no, I really did want to serve, and, and it is a place uh, that you can make a difference. And it sounds like a throwaway line, but it's really true. You know, I remember as, as a, a, a young guy in our neighborhood, there was always something going on. And you always looked up to the police officer. You know, at the time, they, they all seemed like there was six, seven, <laughs> and they probably were. I'm a short guy in person. But you, you looked up to them, and they, they would come on the scene of anything, major or not. And they would take charge. I kind of said, you know, I want to be that guy. Walk into the center and be the person that can fix this. Where'd you go? Uh, when you get to the academy, where'd you graduate? Where'd, you, where'd they send you? I uh, graduated the academy. I went to NSU 15, which covers the 90, 94, and 83, which is Williamsburg, part of Brooklyn, Greenpoint, and Bushwick. So you, you did six months there, uh, part of your training. You do six months in the academy, six months in NSU, which is training on the street, mm -hmm. and then we get assigned to a command after that. Queens guy, do you know anything about Brooklyn? You know, the funny part is, at the time, the Williamsburg area is where I ended up in the 9-0. Uh, it was not the Williamsburg of now, trust me. Uh, it was a different <laughs> world. It's not, it's not the Williamsburg of co-ops and clubs and restaurants. It just wasn't. It was just piles of brick, bricks and uh, rubble and, you know, people just trying to make it. So I remember going to the academy. I would uh, take the BQE and you'd head to the Williamsburg <laughs> Bridge. I used to pick up a guy who lived in the projects on the Manhattan side, and we carpool from there. And I always remember coming uh, over into what's called the south side in the bridge and looking around and said, oh, man, I hope I don't go here. Look at this place, man. <laughs> of course, that you put in a dream, a dream sheet, they call it, which doesn't mean anything. Uh, sure enough, where do I get assigned to 9 -0? I remember looking at the map saying, oh, I went exactly where I didn't want to go. So it was funny that that happened. But you know what? It becomes home. Now, let me ask you, when you got there, did you see anything? Did you look into the future and go, this place eventually is going to be like 
hip world where everyone wants to be? Let me tell you, I wish I did. Yeah. And I worked with police officers that did see it, did have the imagination and the foresight to say, look, we can buy properties here. Literally dirt cheap. Oh. And they, police officers that we stood a footpost in, rode with, are now millionaires because they were smart enough to buy the property. I didn't have that vision at the time. I surely wish I did. When you, I know a ton of cops, when they graduate the academy, the first thing you think of is movies. They're chasing perps. They're doing this. How long out of the academy, maybe you were standing on a corner, maybe it was snowing, that you were like, what did I sign up for? Yeah, definitely. I remember standing uh, on the south side, like say South 2nd Street, Roebling to Driggs to Bedford, and they'd be one building standing. The rest would just be empty lots. And I remember standing there saying, why am I on a footpost here? Literally garden piles of bricks. I, 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 I did. It was mind boggling. You're like, why am I here? Why this corner? What am I doing? You know, as you mature in the job, you realize uh, in between those lots, there's homes with normal people just trying to make it. It's too easy to say in a bad neighborhood, everyone's bad. Everyone's a criminal. That's, that's really not the case. And you learn that quickly as a police officer. But there was times to say, why am I standing in this footpost? I'm literally the only one here. <laughs> After a few years on the job, a cop comes to the crossroads. Do I want to go the detective route? Yeah. Do I want to stay a cop? Maybe do something different in the precinct, go the boss route, go the delegate route. Why did Pat Lynch decide to go the delegate route, and how long on the job did you decide to go that route? Yeah, so I come from a union family. My father was a, a, a member of the Transport Workers Union uh, Local 100, which is the subway workers. Mm -hmm. uh, they went on strike back in the 80, early 80s, and I remember walking the picket line. I was in high school. I remember walking the picket line with him, and— you would walk the picket line, you say, wow, like you can control where you need to go uh, by just taking a stand. And I remember it was at Main Street and Roosevelt Avenue where the seven train is. And I remember like all the, the subway workers picketing and they brought their families and we all grabbed the signs. But you also saw, you know, sanitation trucks who weren't on strike pulling by, showing the unity. Uh, I remember one guy is a, was a subway worker. His brother was a sanitation worker, pulls up with the truck in unity. And it really was then I said, you know, you can make a difference if you just stand together. So I kind of always then at that point said, look, I, I definitely want to be a union guy. Uh, went through the academy, went to the 9-0, and um, I wanted to help the guys, and I saw people weren't. The union was in disarray before we, we took it over. And I felt they weren't connecting to the members. I felt they weren't doing the bidding of the members. There was corruption scandals. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give this a try. Uh, and I remember a good friend of mine who's since passed away, uh, who was my sergeant, and I, I drove him, Sergeant Bruno. Uh, I was at uh, Ainsley and Hope, I think it was. And he said, uh, hey, Lynch, you have a big mouth. Why don't you run for delegate? <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know what? I do and I will. And it, it started there. Um, and how many years did you have on before you became delegate? I was, uh, uh, you know, the debate at the time was whether it was five and a half or six, which sounded better when I was out there <laughs> saying elect me. Because at the time, it seemed like this this kid, you know. So I, I think we settled on five and a half. Uh, so, so I think it, it was around that time uh, that I had on the job when I became delegate. Taking care of the cops and I know. Did you ever have real, real ambition of like, you know what, I want to go a little higher Maybe not president, because that's like that's thinking crazy. It really is. Yeah. Are you thinking I want to go higher up and help more people? Did you think about that? Um, I loved being a delegate. It becomes part of your identity. To this day, I'll introduce myself as a delegate because at the core of it, we're very fortunate to be elected mm -hmm. to the executive board. But at the core of it, we're a delegate. If I went back to the nine o, I would be the delegate from the nine o again. So I always love that, and that's the really where your 
hands-on helping the cops every day, everything from their personal life to everything more serious. What it really came down to is I saw the, the, the union at the time really wasn't uh, doing the bidding of the members. They were really ineffective. You never heard them speak up. Uh, the big quote you'd see in the paper from the PBA at the time, regardless of what the issue was, no comment. So I thought, well, where are these guys? How come there's no comment? We, we need a radio, comment. Right, you need yeah. a comment. In the radio call, we have lots of comments, man. We can figure this out in a couple of minutes. So uh, that was really the reason I thought they were ineffective. But what's odd, and some people don't believe, is uh, myself, and you know John Puglisi, uh, the 9-4 delegate, we were there, two precincts mm-hmm. that border each other. You know, we didn't get into this to become president, first vice president, trustee, or anything else. We literally got a group together to change the union. Now, if we had uh, succeeded in getting a slate together, whether we were on it or not, to change the union, we would have been happy. Wow. We would have went back. And and it sounds odd because I'm very fortunate where I am for the amount of time I am. But it really was we wanted to change the union. If we didn't have a piece or a slate or a position at the time, we would have been fine with it because they were stealing our money. They weren't representing us. And that, as a cop, that, that, that goes against the grain. So we really did get into it uh, for change. You know, we used to show up at the delegates' meetings with school buses, with members, uh, cops from Brooklyn North, 9094, it's really where it started, with banners on the side, uh, crime is down, so is your pay, it's time to change the PBA. And, and that's where we showed up in the parking lot at Terrace in the Park at the time, uh, just to make the change. How long was the previous regime in there for? You know what? Uh, I go back at the time. I remember they were on the executive board. Remember uh, the blue line at the time mm-hmm. and, and John Puglisi and myself who, who, who started it and John Loud at the time. Um, we were at precinct level and then came to the executive board. So many of them, uh, executive board members from previous to us, they uh, started in 1972. and then they, But they also had like, you know, there were trustees and different positions and, and got appointed into the different spots uh, in the union. We came from a precinct level. Uh, to the top. And maybe that's why you're so well respected, and I'm not just saying that to blow smoke out here. Every time you hear about Pat Lynch and, uh, you know, the PBA, it's a great team. How this whole team come together? Because it's so well respected, and it's so diverse, and everyone seems to like them, the personalities. How'd the whole team come together? So, you know, we were all disenfranchised because we weren't getting representation from the union. We didn't see the the trustees, which is the level you'd see after delegate. We didn't see them in, in the command. And so we started putting a newsletter together. Um, myself, uh, Brian Mooney, who for a while was a citywide trustee. He's now moved on into retirement. Um, my co-delegate, Sal Macchio. We started a newsletter uh, talking about issues. Uh, from that, it grew to I get a call from, from John Puglisi, your boy. He uh, get a call saying, hey, meet me over on North, I think it was North First and, <laughs> and Driggs by a bakery. He was on a foot post. I jump in a car. We go over there. We start talking. And he says, look, let's take what we're all doing separately, put it together, and let's take over the union. I said, okay, let's do it. And that's where it started. Wow. Now, how stressful is your position? Because it's very easy. Some people are like, oh, Pat Lynch, you know, they're in the office, they're this. They don't see you're out every day doing something else. How stressful is your position and the whole and the whole PBA, you know, the executive board's position itself? You know, it's stressful at times because the issues that you face affect so many and their families. But the reality is the stress that the police officers face today on patrol is much more because it's it's real physical danger. 
It's going out to actively do your job and not getting backing from City Hall or the uh, police commissioner or anyone like that. So that's real stress where your livelihood and your physical uh, being is, is challenged. The stress here is different. It's not, it's not so much stress. It's all-consuming. It's a job that you literally think about 24 hours a day. Every word you say counts. Every room you go into means something. Um, so it's more of, of uh, a different type of all-consuming. Look, you, you literally, you, you get a call. You get up from your couch. You leave your family behind to help another family. So it's not that it's, it's stress. It's just that there's not a moment where you can't be thinking of contract, what police officer is wrongfully accused, how in what words do we use to speak out on issues that the police officers are facing that first off will get your message out, will be bombastic enough uh, that you get people to listen, but not cross the line into being disrespectful. So it's something that you think about all the time. So is it stress? I say more all-consuming. You have to be willing to put your entire life into doing this job. Which you do, because no one's going to call Pat Lynch up at one eighteen in the morning on a Wednesday night and be like, hey, Pat, it's the news. Three cops just chased a car, did this, got three guns, guys wanted for murder. No one wants a statement from that. But God forbid something tragic does happen and the cop can be perceived as wrong. You're getting the call. How many times are you like, come on, just give me one good call. Like, Don't you want one good call here and there? Exactly right, because you know the work that the members are doing every day. You know, from be, being on patrol, the cops on the radio car, look, it seems routine, but you're really having an effect on someone every day. And you can change someone's life every day in one way or the other. So no one ever asks for those quotes. They do ask for the quotes when many times they perceive that the police officer is wrong. But a cop would look at it and say, well, that was just handling the job, and that's what we, we needed to do. Look, there's no script for a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, you go in, and each time it could be different, so you have to be ready for that happen, for something good or something bad to happen. So it's hard when uh, the biased is always against a police officer, and it's really come to a fever pitch in the last maybe three years. For Well, a little longer. Occupy Wall Street mm-hmm. was the beginning, and then it moved into, of course, last summer, and all those incidents in between where, look, you always say we start our meetings, we have a moment of silence for those we've lost, those that are sick, and those police officers that are wrongfully accused. 99% of the time, they're wrongfully accused. Well, let me ask you about that because one thing you keep preaching, and no one listens to you, the thing they keep preaching is, okay, if there was a police-involved shooting or there's a death and a police officer was there, as a PBA president, you're not going to run out and say he's innocent, but tell the news, please don't run and say he's guilty. Let's wait a day. Let's wait something. Exactly. What we always say is fairness and allow the investigation to move forward. Because if I said automatically, everyone's right all the time, they would stop listening to me just like we stopped listening to them. Mm -hmm. So what you say is allow the investigation to go forward and where the facts go, they go. And then whether it's we're right or maybe there's shades of gray, what we want is due process. We as Americans, as citizens of the city, deserve the same due process, whether it's the trial room or it's a criminal court or in the media. We want due process that's fair. The result we can't predict, but we can strive to make sure it's fair and that the result they come to is correct. The problem is if you take a shooting or an incident and make a decision right away, 
You're condemning and polluting, whether it's a jury pool or public opinion, from the beginning. How could you know? It happened at 3 o'clock in the morning. By 6 o'clock in the morning, you're saying we're wrong? Due process, fairness, let the investigation go forward. Where that investigation goes, then we know what we have to do to protect the members of that citizen who happens to be a police officer. You've came out before and said, hey, yes, that cop was wrong. Yes, that cop is right. Is it gut-wrenching knowing how powerful your voice is when you have to come out and say, yes, the, the cop's wrong. The cop is wrong in this situation. It's difficult. And what gets lost is, yeah, it sounds ordinary to say, but we're human beings. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes the circumstances move so quickly it doesn't come out exactly right. But it has to go back. To, what was the intent of the police officer at the time? When I first came on the job, uh, you'd have some bosses, that, as a delegate, you would go to them and plead the case of the police officer. And the question would ask was, was it a mistake of the heart or the mind? Was it a mistake? Look, the cop was trying to do the right thing, boss, and it just went wrong. But he, they, they were trying to do the right thing. Or were they thinking about it and purposely did the wrong thing? Mistake of the heart or the mind? Most mistakes that come on us are usually mistakes of the heart. We're trying to do the right thing. Then comes the discipline. So the discipline should be fair and equal what that mistake might have been. You mentioned policing now, and the incident that sticks out that so many people talk about is when the, 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 the young lady spit in the cop's face. Mm. She got a desk appearance ticket, meaning that she was out back on the street with a ticket to appear in court, and the cop was still doing the paperwork. That can crush morale because every cop in the world saw that. I'm like, oh, my God, she must be going to jail forever. It's New York. She's spitting his face. There's a pandemic going on. How does that crush morale, and how's morale now with the police department? Morale is at an all-time low. And look, you'll go over quotes over the years from lots of unions. They'll say morale is terrible. Um, but right now, it's, it really is at rock bottom for a number of reasons. And so rapidly, that bad decisions were made by this administration, both in City Hall and the police department, that made it more difficult to do our job. And then you don't feel the support of saying, like we just discussed, hey, let the investigation go forward. We'll, we'll decide from there. So it's difficult now. Now, you talk about the, we used to call, when I came in the job, uh, the revolving door of justice, where the, we would say, we make the collar. They walk in, the revolving door, they'd come out. They'd be finished before the paperwork is done. Quite honestly, we were being a little dramatic back then. <laughs> But the reality is, today, it's absolutely true. Just yesterday, I heard a story. They locked someone up, did the paperwork, released them. He went out and physically assaulted someone. Within an hour, was back in the station house, rearrested. And you know the reality is it's going on as we speak? Reality is that perp's going to be released again. You know, it's, it's, we talked about the discipline in the police department. If we make a mistake of the heart or mind, the discipline should match what the infraction was. So we're in a time when they're saying, let's really demonize police officers, let's punish them, let's fire them, while those same people are saying, oh, murder and mayhem doesn't make a difference, let's, let's empty Rikers Island. That goes to show that they really don't believe the philosophy they're speaking of. The difference for cops, we believe what we're doing. We believe in the job that we're doing. We know it has an effect. You're saying morale's at an all-time low, and I don't want this to be like, okay, morale's at an all-time low, period. Is there a glimmer of hope? And what can be done to raise morale? How can we do that? Look, you know, um, I'm an optimistic guy, even with all that we're facing and the image I might have because I speak out. And it's usually on issues that are difficult for the city that, oh, yeah, he's just automatically things are bad. I'm really not. 
you know, I'm the kind of guy that can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I will admit at times recently, not only could I not see the light at the end of the tunnel, it got so hectic, you couldn't even see the tunnel. Wow. But I do see things are hopefully, and there's an opportunity for the city to change for a number of reasons. You know, we all thought in our minds as cops that people can get hurt in the street. And the neighborhoods will wake up when that starts to happening. The downside to that is you don't want to feel that. And look, I'm a lifelong city resident. Is that that means people are going to be hurt and killed. But unfortunately, that actually has happened. So I think the neighborhoods are waking up and saying, wait a minute. This is not working. I'm not safe. The quality of life is not good. So I see the neighborhood, the regular working folks that get up every day, walk to the subway, walk to the bus, go to work, come back at the end of the day and sit on their stoop. I see them realizing, wait a minute. This can't go on. We spent 30 years fixing the city, and in six months, we gave it back. So once the average working person forces the politicians to do something, then it will change. So am I optimistic? Yes. Do I think we're at an opportunity or a crossroads, as they might say, where we can make that change? Yes, we are. Now it's up to our elected leaders to make that right choice. We're going to have a change of administration in City Hall. I think the city council needs to be changed and realize they're not speaking for the people of the city. Um, so while we at a crossroads, yes, now it's according to what decisions the police department, both sides of city hall, both city council and the mayor's office make. If they make the right decisions, we can bring the place back. Is it difficult for you because you're going to fight that battle of like crime's high, we have to make it lower, bail reform. They're letting cop killers out of jail now. At like on the secret, you're reading the paper. It's like buried on page 17. Like cop killer came out when 20 years ago. That was front page of everywhere in the country. And then it's like basically getting out. Is it exhausting for you and the members in the executive board to fight all these battles? It gets tiresome, worth having, because for instance, the parole issue where you have cop killers from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that are coming up for parole. Before they're released from parole, they have an opportunity for a victim's impact statement. What that is is the victim of the crime, in the case that we represent, police officers that were killed, they get to go and tell their story to the parole commissioners. When you sit in those impact, uh, victim impact statements and you hear the family speak of how their life was changed because their mother or father was killed in the line of duty, <sighs> how they didn't get um, uh, to, to walk down the aisle on that day of the wedding, christen their children. You realize, yes, it's tiring for us, but it's all-consuming for them. So that gives you the energy to have that fight to make sure that justice is served for those victims who happen to be police officers. At one time, it was just pro forma. You went and you had these statements, and it was fine. No one's getting out. Mm -hmm. You tell the families, relax, we're going to be good. You can't say that anymore. They are systematically, Governor Cuomo's administration, and then we'll see what happens with the new administration, has systematically let cop killers out in the streets. And it goes beyond that. Because our job is to represent cops. We focus there. But citizens that were killed, their killers are being released by the hundreds. Now, criminals do one thing. It's not like they're going to come out for the most part and start going to church and be productive. They're going to go back to the neighborhood, go back to the same corner, and set up the same operation they had. First, they're going to look and say, are the cops out here? Because of our staffing, they're going to find there's not a cop on the corner. Mm -hmm. They're going to open up shop again. So those violent killers, 
of not only police officers, of, of regular working folks, are going to be back in the neighborhoods. That's happening while we speak. They just released another one last week. And it's like they're addicts because they're not changing. They, they tell addicts, change your people, places, and the things. They're being released, and they're like addicts. They're not going to change their people, their places, or the things. They're going to go back into the same thing. And forget about Pat. Forget about a police officer's family, too. Like mm-hmm. you said, a civilian's family now. Yeah. That guy killed my son, my brother. That's He's right. out there. He killed my father. That's right. That must can you like I couldn't even fathom that. So so imagine a regular working person whose loved one was killed and the killer is getting out and they don't have a voice. So they don't have anyone doing what we're doing now, you know, speaking out saying, Hey, look over here, look what's happening. We need to fight this. Whether we win or, or lose, we'll find out. So imagine a regular working person living on your block that lost a family member to gun violence or, or, or domestic violence or just a plain old murder, and then you're literally by yourself, and the killer is back in the neighborhood. What does Pat Lynch miss the most about being a patrol cop? Because we talked about stuff, the truth, a lot of stuff. We hear you talk about sure. the same, you know, we're going to get out, bail reform and this. Mm-hmm. What do you miss the most about being a police officer, just, riding around the car? What you do know, you j- the jokes. Look, you— Every day you're on patrol, you'd have fun. You would have laughs. It's a serious job. But in between the radio runs, you'd really go back and forth. You know, um, that's the part you miss. You'd make fun of each other, with each other. Um, and you, you as police officers, become closer to your police officer family sometimes and spend more time than with them than you do with your core family at home, literally. You know, if you go into work, you do 835 in a radio car, you make a call, you wrap around, you're back in the radio car before you've gone home. So you miss the closeness, you miss the laughs you have uh, with your brother and sister police officers. And that's, that was every day. Serious job, but in between, you know, gallows humor, we'd make fun of each other, we'd have a laugh and move on to the next job. Forget about, like, obviously everyone knows about 9-11, even 93. Give me some, one or two stories or big-time jobs you were involved in, like even uh, newsworthy, you know, not just like, oh, you know, like when Sully landed on the Hudson River, stuff around the 9-0 that you were involved in. So the fortunate part of of, uh, being in the PBA executive board is that you can respond and you should respond out to all of these type of jobs, you know. Um, you, uh, every serious job in the city, New York City police officers there. So you go to make sure they're okay, but that puts you on the front line of anything's happening. You mentioned uh, on the Hudson, you know, I remember going there, it was freezing cold day. We were walking into City Hall to do some lobbying work. The plane went down. We just jumped in the car, headed over to the Hudson River, and got there. And I distinctly remember, so they brought into one of the piers there, were bringing these survivors and giving them uh, blankets and all. And I remember seeing the pilot. Now, I didn't know who he was at the time. We know now (laughs) uh, because of his heroics and and steady hand and the movies that are uh, depicting him. I do remember him standing along. There was a glass wall standing there with his uniform on, his cap square in his head, uh, a binder under under his arm, ready to do whatever he needed to do, even though he just landed a plane on the Hudson. So it's funny, you get a, a front row seat. Wow. And it was later, I said, oh, I, now I know who he was, you know. Um, yeah, so it's a lot of jobs like that we get to respond to and serious and not so serious. And, you know, we responded to uh, 12th Avenue. We were out with the canteen feeding our members on Halloween and the maniac a terrorist drove the truck and ran over uh, numerous people killed many of them. We were on the scene for that. So on a regular basis, uh, we were just in Howard Beach the other day when, uh, unfortunately, there was one of our police officers who was in a domestic violence incident. You know, so we, we respond out to all of them. Uh, some of them are funny. Some of them are serious. But we're definitely in the front line. 
Got to ask you a question. 20, 25 years ago, you're riding around the car in Williamsburg area. Could you ever imagine having a phone in your hand that's going to, the technology in the phone where you can run, you know, the NYPD, we can, people can knock whatever they want about, mm-hmm. you know, the police departments and stuff. Yeah. They have iPhones now that can run everybody in the country. That's they right. have uh, license plate readers and body cameras. One, can you ever fathom that that stuff was going to happen? And two, what do you think about the technology? Always good? Is it bad? Yeah, so... The phone is a perfect example. You would go on a radio run into a building, and unless you handled uh, a job there earlier or one of the other sectors, your fellow police officers, they told you about uh, the job there, you kind of went into those jobs blindly. Mm -hmm. Now you just run the address. You know how many jobs were there, what type of jobs were going on, so you can kind of set your mind to the danger you may be facing when you walk through that door. So the information is important to help us do the job. Same thing on a car stop. You can rapidly run the name now. You used to have to go over the radio, hope Central wasn't busy, try to get it back, make sure the system was up and running. Now with the phone, you can literally do it right away. Same thing with running warrants and stuff. So you know sooner, still dangerous job by, by all means for different mm-hmm. reasons, but sooner you have all the information. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good thing. Our job is, as the union is to make sure management doesn't abuse that. They're, they're disciplined crazy to use it against us, you know, those mistakes of heart and mind. Um, body cams. You know, at first it's difficult to think you're going to have a body camera on and every job, every word, every action is going to be watched. Mm-hmm. And many of the advocates, the ACLUs of the world, were pushing for these cameras. We want these cameras because we know how bad the cops are and if we, we're going to see it firsthand. And now they're disappointed. You notice you don't hear them talking about it a lot anymore because what they found is what we already knew. We're doing our job properly, professionally, and honestly. And we're doing the job right. So what's happened, while, yes, there's always trepidation and fear that, you know, boy, you know, I got to watch everything I say Mm -hmm. uh, and do with that camera on your chest. What they've found is that we're honestly doing the job. And from the union's point of view, it's helped us. When you have the shooting at one time, it was your word. Perp ran. I chased. And perp pulled a gun. And you know, uh, it's called the Brooklyn bounce, the Bronx bounce, where you know the gun hits the ground, bounce, and it's gone into the wind. So now, in the chaos, the gun, gun is gone. With the body cams, now what we have is we see the shooting, we see the perp pull the weapon, we see the chaos that the police officer faced, and more importantly, we see the actions that they took, and it exonerates us 99.9% of the time. So, yes, fear of them coming, worth taking that trip. And in the long run, it helps us do our job. The undertone that we're podcasting now is, you know, there's a lot of management and discipline and stuff. And, uh, you know, City Hall keeps getting mentioned. The PBA is, like every city agency, always backs uh, a candidate. It seems now you're being more vocal with who we uh, who we back and who we should be. Why is that? Because the times and the laws that are being passed are more serious. And the anti-police atmosphere is now crossed into and become part of the fabric of our legislatures, whether it's Albany or city council, where the laws that they're passing now are making it more difficult for uh, our members to do their job. Also with that is the words they say, look, we talk about the killing of, of Ramos and Lou, and what was most disturbing besides obviously that assassination is that 
everyone predicted it was going to happen. I remember begging the mayor, you have to stop repeating what the street uh, mobs are saying. It's polluting the street. It's making the atmosphere danger, dangerous. And I said, you know, someone's going to get hurt. You have to stop. They didn't stop. Not only did people get hurt, two police officers were assassinated. So the political atmosphere is so polluted that everything that goes wrong in society is blamed on the police officer. Meanwhile, if you just take a step back from that, you look at everything that's done wrong by another agency, the answer of City Hall is to let's put the NYPD in there. They talk about defund the police, but no, this is a problem. Uh, Child welfare is not doing their job. Let's uh, ACS, let's put police officers in there. Uh, The housing authority is not doing their job. I have an answer. Let's put the police officers in there. And that's going on right to this very moment. Corrections. Corrections is having a problem because of the staffing, the mismanagement from City Hall. What's their answer? Let's figure out. Let's let NYPD figure out how to fix it. You know, so the political landscape has changed. We have to get more active in it. It's not a glamorous thing, but our members need to vote. You need to walk up the block, go into the senior center or the public school, take a couple of minutes and vote. Not glamorous, but it has a huge impact because remember— The candidates don't know who you voted for, but they know if you voted. We need to be a voting block. If you get a voting block, you have a voice. It gets stronger by the numbers, and then you get candidates. Once we're a voting block, you can say to a candidate, we put you in, and we can take you out. You were famously trending. You were the number one trending topic on Twitter with the RNC speech. How did Trump reach out to you? Did you think it was a prank call? Take me through that because I thought it was great. Like Pat Lynch is going to be with Trump. Like, wait, what? Where did yeah. this come from? So, so I've met uh, President Trump before he was a candidate for president. He was always active in the PAL. Uh, you know, he was, he was a rich person and, and, and uh, he would donate and they would have events and he would be there. And he always followed uh, what police officers did. So we weren't buddies or anything like that. I don't want to suggest that. But he knew of the union and he reached out and said, look. Uh, I'd like to get your support. Here's, here's, I want to support police officers. So you have to take the, the full picture of everything that's going on because what we do is we support the person that's supporting us. We don't care what party you are overall. But look at the atmosphere at the time where everyone was demonizing police officers, walking away from us, and then actively working to change the laws to make it difficult for our police officers to do their job running the staffing to a point where it's dangerous, refusing to pay us and treat us like professionals. So that was a voice that was supporting police officers, and that's why we went there. He recognized that. Now, we have a new president in office. We hope that he's doing the right thing. Time will tell. We don't care what party they're from. It's what's the policies that are going to help us do our job so we can help the neighborhoods we live in and patrol. Were you nervous giving that speech? You know what? It was difficult because you knew it was a big stage, as they say, you know, Um, and literally the world was watching. But when you believe in what you're doing, it becomes easy. If you're doing what you believe in, and, and as police officers, we believe I have sons on the job, and so I believe in what we do, it makes it easier. Look, what what happens is you find the voice. If you know the issue and you feel you have the answer— then it's easy to talk about it. So regardless of how big the stage is, uh, 
you find your voice and you, you realize how important the moment is, regardless of where it is, to make sure the words count to, first off, what the members need. And look, I, I say to people, is it thanks for speaking out and that sort of stuff? And I honestly just say, I just get to say what everybody's thinking. The curtain has to come down now for one second. And I don't know if you had any private time with Trump. Any funny stories? Because I've had a lot of people on that have hung out with Trump, golfed with him. They said, he's a funny dude. Is this, did you have any personal interaction where it was kind of funny with him? You know, the circumstances were serious at the time. So it wasn't a lot of laughs. Okay. But what you did see is that um, whether it was in the White House or any place else, what you see on TV is what you get. So we had that roundtable discussion mm -hmm. with uh, police groups from around the country. Uh, he focused a lot on New York City because he's from here. Um, so we had those discussions on a serious note. But in between, he goes, look, I'm going to stop for a minute because I have to talk to the press. And they brought the press in uh, to the cabinet room where we were sitting. And he right away started, oh, Jerry, that's fake news. And, you know, so what you, what you see on TV is when you're in person, you say, that's really how he is. Whether you like it or not, he's the same on camera or off. One more political question. Uh, right now, the odds on favorite, and we never go with Vegas says. The Vegas yeah. gets a lot wrong. Uh, Eric Adams is going to be the next mayor of New York City, the Big Apple, former NYPD captain, which on paper for the PBA must be like, oh, that's a plus. That's a home run. Mm -hmm. He's came out about playing clothes, bringing it back. I want to, you know, lower crime and stuff. Relationship with him, thoughts on it, morale? So we feel it's going to be a good thing because he did wear our uniform and he went through the ranks from a transit police officer on up to, to a captain before he retired. So he understands the issues. He's a person that uh, grew up in the neighborhoods so we and a violent neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So he understands what it is to bring a neighborhood back and be able to uh, live there in peace and his family as well. So those are all pluses for us. We happen to have a relationship. As you know, we were both Brooklyn North. Mm -hmm. uh, so we knew each other from patrol. He was a, a lieutenant in the 9-4 and the 8-8. I was in the 9-0, which is sandwiched right in between. So we got to know each other pretty well there. We got to know each other then uh, after he left the police department. He was a state senator. So we dealt uh, with him in Albany as a state senator, and he was very good to us. He understood the issues. He helped pass legislation for us. So we have a, a, a good, uh, solid relationship. Now, as I said earlier, when you're on the big stage, he'll be on the big stage uh, for our world, for sure. So it's according to what he does from here. We're optimistic uh, that if the words he's using now, he can turn into policy. Uh, if the words of we will defend and back police officers honestly and fairly after an investigation, if he brings that uh, to the mayor's office and city hall, I think we'll be in good shape. Time will tell. You know, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, for us, we'll, there's a clean slate. Uh, we always start with the mayor with a clean slate. Mm -hmm. We hope they succeed because if they succeed, we succeed. If he does right by police officers, it allows us to do our job. If we can do our job, the city's safer, and we can afford to live here. You know, pay police officers like professionals, treat them like professionals, train them like professionals. That's all we ask. So we're optimistic, and time will tell. How many times do you hear, Pat Lynch, oh, he's a politician. He's going to be a politician. Any thoughts, dreams of anything eventually of going to politics? No. No. Okay. I, look, I, I have, you know, it's going to sound like a throwaway line. I have the best job in the world. Mm -hmm. Look. I'm, I've been a police officer for 38 years. I'm 21 years here, uh, fortunate enough because of the members to be the president of the organization. It's a job that you can make a difference. You can have a voice. You can help. You can, you can see the work you're doing. 
when it goes right or when it goes wrong immediately. And you know cops. If they're happy, they'll tell you. If they're mad, you'll get that fish <laughs> handshake. So you, you know right away. So it is easy compass or gauge uh, to know what you're doing. So I wouldn't want to be anyplace else. You know, I'm, 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 I'm blessed to be in this spot as a police officer. There's still lots of work to do. There's lots of problems to solve. So, no, I don't have thought. It's, it's, it's nice to hear. I, I get it. But uh, you, you always have to be a little skeptical of why people ask you and, and say to do things. What we do here is we focus on today. Right now I'm focusing on this interview to make sure I say it right, do it right, get the message out, help the police officers. If I do this right, it'll lead till tomorrow, and tomorrow we start over. That's really how we do the job here. Each day, what problem do we face? We have a long-term vision, and we know where we need to go. But to get there, we have to look at the map every moment, every person you talk to, every action you take. So, no, I, I, I'm, I'm good where I am. Thanks. You casually threw out, oh, my sons are on the job. One, what advice did you give them? Mm-hmm. Two, and your feelings when they raised the right hand and you saw them at graduation. Very proud. Uh, they're both way smarter than I am. It's not a throwaway <laughs> line. They take after their mother, which is a good thing. I was the loud guy in the back of the room. They, 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 they have a voice of their own, but they're smart. Um, it was great at graduation where they raised their right hand to become a police officer. Uh, it's, it's a very proud moment. It's a worrisome moment. And most people would think of policing as the moment, uh, as the danger of being on the street and getting hurt. That's something we kind of live with. Um, that's not the worry. The worry is that hope they don't get jammed up in our, par, in our language. You know, hope they don't get in trouble because it's, it's, you'll go out to do the job honestly and then sometimes it doesn't go right. You know, when you come into policing, you're kind of working class people from the neighborhoods. So you're honest in heart and you want to do the right thing. But sometimes doing the right thing gets you in trouble. So the worry is, yes, the danger is there, but you kind of suppress that and compartmentalize it. The bigger worry is like all police families, I hope they go out today and I hope they don't get jammed up. And and that's really the worry. But overall, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a great job that Gave me, like I said earlier, my father put us in the middle class. My job is to keep us there. I hope they move us on beyond that. Um, so it, it's a good, solid place to, bo- to be, and it's a noble profession. Again, sounds like a throwaway line. Sounds like it's in the union handbook. Say it. But the more you see, the more you do, you realize it's a noble, honest profession that really makes a difference. Quite frankly, more than most with the military on the same level. I've taken up 45 minutes of your time. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Sure. Coolest person you've ever met while working? Joe Frazier. Metropolitan Avenue, uh, there was called uh, Right Way. It was like the precursor to Home Depot. It was where the small mom and pop uh, hardware stores uh, went to shop. Okay. So as cops, we were allowed in. We knew the folks that were there. And one day we see a commotion. Joe Frazier's there with his son, Marvis Frazier, which in my family, it was always the debate. I come from a big family. It was always a debate whether you're Muhammad Ali or Joe Frazier back and forth. Uh, who was who the greatest, right? So, you, uh, so we saw him. And what was striking to me, he was older at the time. And, you know, boxing has wear and tear on you and, and how you move and how you think. What, what struck me besides uh, uh, seeing him in person and taking a picture and getting the autograph like anybody, you know, anybody would do, like <laughs> starstruck, but what, what struck me there is his son Marvis was also a boxer, and he got injured, and he, he had a big scar down the back of his neck, but the way that he stuck with his father, knowing that he's a little slower than he was back then, uh, the respect he had for his father, the way he walked him around, made sure he was good, made sure no one took advantage of him. 
it's stuck in my mind, and shoot, that must have been probably mid-90s. Wow. But Joe Frazier, Metropolitan, right over that drawbridge. Cops can eat any meal from, you know, caviar in the car, hitting the bumps, mm. and they wouldn't spill anything. Worst holiday meal Pat Lynch had in a car. Well, that's tough. We had a lot of bad meals, but, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, it's the catch-all. You, if it gets busy, you're either getting a slice or a chicken palm hero. So <laughs> I'll have to stick with that. <laughs> Favorite cop? Movie or TV show? Oh, uh, Taking a Pelham 123. Best city movie ever. Again, I come from a subway family. I was a subway conductor. Pelham is the line, the six line. 123 is the time it leaves the North Terminal. If you watch that movie, every aspect of it told the stories of the 70s of when I grew up. The transit authority, they got accurate. The transit police, they got accurate. The NYPD, they got accurate. The life in the subway, they got accurate. Best movie by far. What does Pat Lynch today say to Pat Lynch, the rookie who's raising his right hand, who's walking around on North, uh, South 3rd Street and Roebling Street? Um, don't worry so much. Take it as it comes. You know, in the end, uh, it, it'll, uh, it'll, you'll come to the conclusion that it'll be the right thing. Make the decisions common sense. Don't overthink them. When you're there, someone needs help. Make the decisions that are right. Again, honest of uh, heart and mind. Make an honest heart decision. Don't worry too much about how you're supposed to do it. And, you know, don't be afraid to ask, ask for help, uh, you know. Your hair, the reason you're not wearing headphones, your <laughs> hair's always so good. What product does Pat Lynch wear in his hair? <laughs> Axle grease from the garage, like the little <laughs> rascals. It's, it's called the Dracula look. It, it changed color now. It's a little whiter. I know we're, we're, not, uh, we're not on TV. It's a little grayer than it was, but <laughs> axle grease for a car. It holds everything. It, you're a different type of guest. Usually I'm having on an author or an athlete or a movie star, and they want to plug anything. Anything you want to plug, talk about, any, uh, put any word out there? You know what? We need, we need help in telling the police officers stories. We just passed September 11th, and my fear is that people are trying to get past it. So we have to keep telling the story of New York City police officers, the heroics, whether it's September 11th or the ordinary work we do every day. It can't just be the union. It needs to be all of us having that discussion. Something like this podcast mm-hmm. where, you know, speak out. Tell the story. Put a face on the police officer. You know, we just went through a, a program of uh, defund the police you know, we're going through a program. We need police. So we have magnets and stickers and posters. And so we need our members, our family members, to put them in the local shop, put them on their car, bring them to the station house, give them to the community meetings, because it makes people think, of course we need police, but we have to say it for it to happen. So, yeah, you gave me an opportunity to plug. I'm going to plug that. Keep telling our story because it's a real, honest, good story. I'm going to tell you, we're going to finish with this. I tell my mom each week, hey, mom, I'm having on this astronaut or this star. And she's always like, oh, that's super cool. And I'm being honest with you. She moved down to the Jersey Shore. I told her you were coming on. It's the first time in six years of doing this. And, Pat, I've sat down with A-listers. She's like, I'm so mad I can't come to that. She thinks when you talk, she thinks it's the greatest, how you have every cop's back, and you always come off so articulate. So I want to thank you. My mom would thank you. This was a pleasure. I wanted to do it for a while. So thank you so much for giving me 50 minutes of your time. I hope you had fun. I hope it was a little different. Usually when you're doing this, it's always defending the cop or speaking out about you know a high-profile issue. So hopefully it's a little more fun to hear more of your backstory. So I had a blast. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate the opportunity for me to help me do the job I'm doing. Through the magic of editing, you'll make me sound smart, hopefully. (laughs) I'm going to make you sound great, Pat. I appreciate it. Thank you, (laughs) Thank you, brother.